Well, if you will please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts, chapter 11. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 919. So, Acts, chapter 11. We're gonna, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Of all the public moments that stand out about the reformer Martin Luther's life, there are really two, I think, that are most famous. The first came in 1517 when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. The second, though, was in 1521 where he stood on trial at the Diet of Worms, spelled worms, but worms, for the books that he had written in that time span. Now, Luther's call for reform in the church had been pretty easy uh, to ignore at the beginning, but as time went on, the sparks that got thrown from his hammer uh, really began to take hold in the church in Germany, and it was at the Diet of Worms where that ember of reformation really blew into full-on revival. Now, when Luther stood on trial before that council, uh, he was presented very dramatically, uh, with a collection of everything that he had written. And he, would, he was asked two questions. He was asked first if they were in fact his. And second, he was asked whether he would be willing to recant these heretical books. Well, Luther stood there and he agreed that the books were in fact his. But then he told the council he could not recant what he had written. And this is what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Now, you can imagine what kind of response that had before this council. Uh, Luther actually expected to die for those words, but he didn't. Instead, uh, he was actually kidnapped by a friend, and then he was held captive in a castle uh, until things kind of settled down for him. And during that time, the Reformation swept across Germany, uh, and Western civilization was fundamentally changed. Uh, a year later, Luther was preaching and reflecting on what had happened in one of his sermons. He said this, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, and otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amstorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever afflict, inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. In the midst of controversy and danger, Luther submitted himself to the Word of God and he took his stand upon the Word of God. What's more, by Luther's own testimony, it was the Word of God which did the work of restoring the church back to the purity of the gospel of grace. Now there was a lot more work that needed to be done. But that start there happened with the Word of God. And the continued change happened with the Word of God, just as Luther said. 
Over the years, the Church of Jesus has faced all sorts of controversies, divisions, and disagreements. There are many controversial issues that face the church even now with loud voices on either side of those issues demanding that Christians go this way or that. In the midst of that chaos and this shouting, it's important to remember that God has not left us without direction. He has not left us powerless. In fact, as citizens of heaven, Christians must always seek to submit ourselves to the voice of of our king. We must fasten ourselves, as Luther did, to the anchor of the word of God, trusting as God has proven time and time again that his word is up to the task, that it will in fact do the work God has appointed it to do, so that Christ will be glorified over controversy, which is really the main idea what we're looking at in our passage this morning. Now, I don't usually give you the main idea before I read the passage, but I'm going to do that this morning. The main idea of what we're looking at this morning is this. God has given us His Word, and He has equipped His people with His Spirit to ensure that Christ is glorified in us, even over controversy. Let's begin to unpack that as we read our passage together. If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word as I read aloud from Acts 11, starting verse 1 through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. 
And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, so uh, it's good to have this recap from Peter himself about everything that had happened at Cornelius' house. Uh, As we come to Acts 11, it brings us back to familiar ground, recounting to us how God brought salvation to Cornelius and his house um, through the preaching of Jesus' death and resurrection by Peter. The fact that God inspired Luke to recount All of this, word for word really, again, I think shows us the profound importance of this moment for the early church. But additionally, I find this passage to be immensely instructive for us because I think that God intends for us to learn to trust in the sufficiency and in the authority of his word to guide us as we seek to walk in obedience to Christ. I think we are meant to learn three lessons from this text about the Word of God and about how God uses His Word to keep and sustain His people. And those are going to be our three points this morning. So first we want to see that God's Word teaches us that He is in control even over controversy. God is in control even in the midst of controversy. Second, God's Word gives us clarity and authority we can rely on. God has given us clear authority to rely on in his word. And finally, this passage teaches us that God's word is what does the work. God's word does the work. And in our time this morning, I want to unpack each one of those things for us as we, as we study uh, what happened here as the church in Jerusalem unpacked what they had just, this marvelous thing that had caught them all by surprise. First, we want to look at how God triumphs over controversy. Now, it did not take long for word to get back to the believers who were in the rest of Judea about what had happened there in Caesarea in the house of this Roman centurion, Cornelius. Uh, Luke does not tell us how long Peter spent with Cornelius. He doesn't tell us if he returned to Joppa before heading to Jerusalem. But what he does tell us is that when he went there, he was hammered with criticism for what he had done. Now, this criticism wasn't from everyone in the church, only those belonging to what Luke labels the circumcision party. He doesn't give us any names here, and he doesn't indicate that this criticism came from any of the other apostles. But Luke seems to be referring to that same group of people who Paul mentions in Galatians 2, who we know argued that Christians had to observe the traditions and the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. Uh, These men were upset with Peter for two reasons. First, they were upset that he had gone and met with uncircumcised men. And second, they were upset that he had even gone so far as to eat with them. Now, I have to believe Peter was expecting that something like this to happen when he went to Jerusalem. This may be the reason he actually went to Jerusalem, because he knew as word got back there needed to be explanation. The church needed to hear about what had happened. As we, if we think back to what uh, Peter actually said in chapter 10, he had told Cornelius and everyone who was gathered th- with them that it was unlawful for a Jew to associate with uh, or even to visit anyone of another nation. 
Now, although a law that Peter had in mind was really the teachings and the traditions of the elders, that didn't change the fact that Peter had done something which was scandalous in the eyes of his fellow Jews. In fact, he had gone even further than just, uh, just going and visiting with these Gentiles. He had actually spent a number of days with them, and he had gone so far as to sit at the same table to eat with them. Now, as a, as a rule, Jews do, did not eat with Gentiles because the Gentiles did not observe the same purity restrictions of the law that they did. So by sitting and eating with a Gentile, a Jew was almost could almost be guaranteed that they would be eating or touching something that the law had commanded them not to eat or touch. Now being the devout man that he was, I would expect Cornelius to know those restrictions and to do everything he could to accommodate the needs of his guests. But the issue here has more to do with just the food that they ate. In sharing a meal together, Cornelius and Peter were enjoying a special kind of fellowship with each other. They weren't just satisfying their hunger at the same time. They were building a relationship with each other. They were sharing this, this, they were sharing this commonality together, this unity. Just the same as if you go out this afternoon and you go out and you eat with someone, you're sharing something with them. You're growing in this and you're communicating something to other people about who you associate with by doing so. That was going on here. And I think that really is the reason these men got so upset with Peter. They were upset because his actions were communicating a certain sort of unity and peace between himself and this Roman, this uncircumcised man. What Peter did communicated to everyone else that there was an acceptance here in spite of the fact that Cornelius did not bear the outward sign of the Mosaic Covenant on his body. They were upset, really, because where they were standing, this looked like compromise to them. To the men who represented this party, in order to receive the benefits of Jesus' saving work, you first had to become a Jew. And that hadn't happened. And that's why they're so upset with Peter. The benefits and the promises of the Mosaic Law were nationally focused on Israel, even as they had benefits for the world. But the food laws and the purity laws that you can read about in Exodus and Leviticus, those things were meant to distinguish the nation of Israel from the rest of the world. They were intended to identify Israel as God's holy people. They were given by God to his people to be received by faith and to be obeyed in love. But Jesus, in fulfilling the demands of the law, expanded the blessings of God's righteousness beyond the borders of Israel. His kingdom is a global kingdom. In the Great Commission, Jesus declared that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And on the basis of that authority, we find that he sent his disciples out to make other disciples, not only in Jerusalem and in Judea, but also in Samaria and in all the nations of the earth. That commission wasn't just to go and find physical descendants of Abraham in all the places where they had been scattered. No, it was a command to go and make disciples of everyone who by faith in Christ becomes a child of Abraham, receiving the promise of the offspring. As the Lord says concerning his beloved son in Isaiah 49 verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be made my servant 
to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. As we look at what Jesus says in his great commission, we compare that to what Isaiah prophesied. You can see the connection that is there. That was happening with Cornelius. The promise of the gospel was going out from Israel and reaching, beginning to reach the ends of the earth. Now as we read about the criticism that Peter received, I think we need to be careful not to think too harshly about these men. It would be so easy if we were there, knowing what we know, to jump on these guys and to start to berate them for their being so ungracious. But I think we have to remember, up until this, the point where Peter had actually received the vision of the great white sheep and seen the Holy Spirit come on Cornelius and his household, I don't think that even he fully understood what God was doing in expanding this hope to the world. The church across Judea was learning something here about the surprising grace of God. They were beginning to understand, and it was being clarified, that because of Christ, we do not receive salvation by being joined to a nation, but rather because we are joined by faith to King Jesus. Peter didn't go to Caesarea because he was trying to expand his influence. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't trying to go make a bunch of proselytes who were going to follow after him. No, he'd gone because God instructed him to do so. And because God made him understand that in Christ, God had broken down that dividing wall that once separated Jew from Gentile to cleanse them both through faith in Christ. The men who criticized Peter were in the wrong, not fundamentally because Peter was an apostle, although I think that would have made me pump the brakes here, but they were wrong because they didn't under fully understand what God had done. Peter's response to them, Peter as an apostle, could have hammered down on them, but he doesn't. As we look at this, his response here, here is remarkably humble. Rather than coming back to them with hammer blows, he actually responds graciously to them. And really what stands out to me here about the way God used this moment is the way that he, he grew and he matured these believers in their grasp of the gospel and the glory of Christ through this scandal. God did not waste the controversy, did he? In fact, he prevailed over it to clarify the mystery of his will and salvation. As the church processed through what had just happened, it came to a better and a higher understanding of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so it has, it has been every time that the church in history has faced controversy and criticism, it has grown. God has used it. In the last 2,000 years, it's been those moments where the church has been pressed that God has shown himself to be faithful and true. And it's in those moments where the church has better learned and defined sound doctrine. The creeds and the confessions that have proved so helpful over the years for accurately communicating sound biblical doctrine have typically been born out of the midst of controversy. Now that's not to say that we should seek to be controversial. But it is something I think that should give us confidence about God's commitment to the purity and the maturity of his church. 
God does not waste moments like this. He prevails over them and through them so that Christ Jesus might be seen in his glory and his splendor. God uses those moments to correct his people, to deepen their understanding of the truth, and to bring glory to Christ as we humbly submit ourselves to him. Now, there are many issues facing the church today. Many issues and controversies that most of us probably would have never expected or thought even be possible even 20 years ago. And yet here we are, debating with neighbors and friends and co-workers about the sanctity of life, about gender distinctions, about how people should use their bodies or not use their bodies. There are, there are a lot of different voices saying a lot of different things about how we should respond to those issues. There's a lot of criticism being leveled at the church in the West right now. And while it is indeed terrible that we should find ourselves in a situation like this, where we are debating about whether or not truth even exists, I think that as we look at that, the lesson that we take with us into the fray from this passage is that God has a purpose for all of this. That the, the questions, the criticisms, the controversies are not going to overthrow what he is doing. And that it's actually through those things we can trust that God is going to deepen his church and mature his church and show the faithfulness of Christ and the sufficiency of his word. We can take a passage like this and understand that God is, has, is going to do something through this. We can look at the battles that are in front of us and understand that God is doing something to, to deepen our own understanding of the truth and also, I think, to lay a foundation for future generations of believers of what it looks like to stand fast on the sound doctrine of the Bible. We may wish that we would not have to face times such as these. There's a moment in, um, in The Fellowship of the Ring, in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, where Frodo is on his way to Mount Doom, and he turns to Gandalf, one of the people in his party, and he says, I wish this had never happened to me. I wish this had never come to me. And I can't tell you how often I think we find ourselves in that position where we want to say to God, why would you do this? Why would you put me in this position where I don't even know where to go? And then Gandalf says to Frodo, so do all who live to see such times as this. But it is not up to us to decide what position we are in but to be faithful with where we are. That's paraphrasing a little bit. I think as we look at this, we can grieve the fact that there was controversy at all in the church. And yet at the same time, we can recognize that God graciously used that to deepen the church, to give, us a, to give the church a better grasp on a fundamental aspect of the gospel. Something that, because it is true, we are here worshiping Christ, our King. Let me encourage you, friends, as we look at this, to recognize that God has a purpose and a plan to glorify Christ, even in the midst of controversy. And let me encourage you then not to fear controversy so much as you fear not submitting yourself in obedience to the Lord. Let us be good soldiers who run willingly, not just to the places and the topics where we feel comfortable, 
but where the battle rages, engaging others with the truth in love, trusting that God is indeed working all things together for our good and for the glory of Christ. That brings us to our second point. God's word gives us clarity and authority we can rely on. Now, if I had been in Peter's shoes, and if I had been criticized like this by these men, I think I'd been pretty hot. In fact, I think I would have struggled not to take this criticism personally. Peter hadn't asked me to send to Cornelius. He went because the Lord sent him. And these men are criticizing him for something he did in obedience to Christ. It's hard when, when somebody comes at you like this not to, to get hot and bothered about it. That is something y'all say up here, right? Hot and bothered? Okay. I mean, if there's a southernism here. It's hard not to feel personal, to feel attacked, and to question whether or not you're in the right because someone is coming after you. Honestly, I think that's what makes Peter's response here so amazing. Peter is the apostle who was king of putting his foot in his mouth. But he doesn't do that here. His explanation to these men and to the rest of the church is just so saturated with grace. They didn't see the vision. They had not been told by the Holy Spirit to make no distinction and to go. They had not heard Cornelius' vision of the angel. And they had not witnessed the Holy Spirit come on these believers, just as he had witnessed, just as he had done on the first believers on the day of Pentecost. So in verse 4, Luke tells us how Peter explained all these things in order to them. He told them about seeing the sheet descending from the down out of heaven by its four corners with all these animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds. He told them how the voice from heaven had told him to rise and kill. And when he disputed and said, By no means, Lord, but nothing common has ever entered my mouth. The voice had come again and said to him, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then Peter connects this vision for, for those people who are listening to him about the arrival of Cornelius' men and how the Spirit had instructed him to go, making no distinction. And in verse 13 and 14, Peter tells his critics how these men had, had taken him to Cornelius and how they, they had been sent by Cornelius because an angel had commanded him to send for him. And then Peter explains how as he preached this message of salvation, that the Spirit came on all who were in the house, just as it did on the other believers at the beginning. And how when he saw this, he remembered the word of the Lord Jesus when he said, John, that's John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now as we listen to Peter recount everything he experienced to these other believers, it's clear from start to finish that all of this was the work of God, not Peter's. Peter did not set out to do this on his own authority. He didn't come to decide this was a good idea and he'd go. No, he had gone because he was commanded to. And it's not an insignificant detail that God showed this vision to Peter three times before these men showed up. And it's not a small thing that in the midst of that, the Spirit had to come to Peter and say, I want you to go with them. Make no distinction. God was showing Peter what he said before Cornelius and his house. That truly God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It was God who sent Peter to Cornelius' house. And it was God who saved Cornelius. 
and those who were there, who were also saved through the preaching of the gospel. The key part of Peter's explanation here really, I think, is his assessment of this in verse 17. He says to the men who had criticized him, If then God gave the same gifts to them as he gave to us when we first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? That's the reason that Peter had actually commanded Cornelius and everyone else who was in the house who had believed to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the reason Peter then decided it was a good and appropriate thing for him to stay with these new believers and to share with them the rest of Jesus' teachings. And this is why Peter saw that it was right for him to sit down at the table and to break bread with men who he would have never associated with otherwise. The word of the gospel came to the Gentiles, and they had received it in faith just as Peter and the apostles and the rest of the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea had. As we look at Peter's explanation, there's just a couple things that we need to notice. First, I want you to notice the way that the leading of the Holy Spirit functioned in perfect union with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never lead us in a way that is not consistent with Scripture. Paul tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. That the men who wrote the Scriptures were carried along by the Spirit to write what they did. In sending Peter to Cornelius, God did lead Peter to defy some of the traditions of men. But he never led Peter to contradict his word. That is very important for us to recognize. In fact, God led Peter to play a key role in the fulfillment of God's word by bringing the good news of how Christ had fulfilled all righteousness for us through his life, death, and resurrection. God does not change. His word is true. And his Holy Spirit will never lead you in a way that is not consistent with what he has already said. God does not change his mind on things. Now this is important because even this week I've been dealing with some things and not really to anyone here but dealing with some, a, a thing going on in which someone is claimed to be doing God's will even though it is a complete contradiction of what God, God has, has revealed. And so as we look at how the church handled controversy, as we think to ourselves about what God wants us to do, we need to recognize that if we are being led or inclined to do something that is in clear contradiction with God's word, that is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? Don't come to me and tell me that you are doing what God wants you to do when you are disobeying his clear word and following what you really want to do. Okay? Be very, very careful here. Because we're not immune from this. So rely on God's word. And rest in the Holy Spirit as he leads you. Second, the second thing you need to notice here. Notice the way that God's word functioned as the key authority for how Peter interpreted his own experience. Peter saw a vision from heaven. He had heard Cornelius' story about his vision, and then he saw how the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and everyone who was in, his, in the house. But it was when he remembered the words of Jesus 
that he came to the final conclusion that the gospel really was for the Gentiles even as it was for the Jews. As Peter and those who were with him watched in amazement, and as, as God worked in the hearts of these men and women who heard the gospel, Jesus' promise concerning the Spirit came true. You remember that as Jesus was preparing his disciples, uh, John, in the Gospel of John, as he's preparing his disciples for his departure, he tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going away. And it's to your advantage. Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. But in the meantime, I'm going to send my comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. And here is what he's going to do. He's going to bring to mind everything I have spoken to you. Because he does not speak on his own authority, but on the authority that I have. The Holy Spirit did that here. As the church is wrestling through one of the most monumental moments in its time up to this point. The Holy Spirit brought Jesus' words to mind. And that was what convinced Peter that what he was witnessing was in fact true. That is why Peter then took the step to command Cornelius and these, other, these others who were in the house to take the step of baptism. That is why he had come to the conclusion that he would be standing in God's way if he did not receive these Gentile believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter gives a really important model to us about the role that God's Word is intended to play in our lives. It is our authority for everything we do in faith and practice. God has given us His Word for that reason. The Spirit uses God's Word to instruct us in all things. And so, God's Word must be that rule over everything we do in our lives. Now, I talked about the usefulness of creeds and confessions earlier, but let's all understand that the usefulness of those things is only insofar as they line up with God's Word. At the same time, we must be careful to, to test our own experiences the way that Peter did, viewing them through the lens of God's Word. Now the third thing, and related to that, I think we need to notice about this, this situation is how the authority of God's word is what ultimately put the church at peace and brought the church together in awe at the greater glory of Christ. In verse 18, Luke says that when they heard these things, they fell silent. The criticism stopped. And instead, the church glorified God and said together then to the Gentiles and also, and also then God has granted repentance that leads to life. What, a, what an amazing moment. At one second the church is up in arms. There's division. There's, there's confusion. And then the word of God and the work of God were declared. And then the people of God became at peace. The authority of the word brought peace. It brought them to a better understanding of the mystery of the gospel of grace and the glory of King Jesus. This is the way it should always be. As God reveals himself in his word, as the spirit applies that word to us, the right response of God's people to that should always be praise and worship. God hasn't left us guessing. He has revealed himself. He's given us clear instruction. 
He has given us the authority of His Word. If we're to live as disciples of Christ, then we have to submit ourselves to His Word the way that Peter did and the way that these first believers did. God's Word is what brought the controversy to an end. And it also brought the church together in unity and in praise and worship to God. What a model for us for considering how the Word should work in us. I am not always right about everything. Ellie can tell you. And neither are you. It's not personal. We're in the pursuit of truth. And sometimes that means that we are in the wrong. And we need to be corrected. The Word is what brings us to peace with each other. The division that we see in churches is oftentimes because we have two, we have drawn up, this is my position and you must submit to it. This is the only way the Bible must be understood here. And that's what the other side says too. So that neither side is willing to actually consult the word and submit to it. Let's avoid that. Let us submit ourselves to God's word for the sake of the glory of Christ and the unity of his people. What is always right is God's word. And so God has called us to be about the business of discipling one another in truth and in love. Don't wield God's truth as a sword to kill your brother. We must always seek to grow and mature in our own faith. And we must submit ourselves to God in humility and affection. Now, that brings us to our third point. And that's just something I want to show you here about the way that God's word does the work. This morning we have seen how God's word teaches us that he's in control, even in the midst of controversy. And we've also seen how God's word has been given to us to be an authority in all truth. But the last thing I want to show you from this passage is the actual, the role that God's, God's word played in the work that God does, specifically in his work of salvation. In telling us about how salvation came to the Gentiles and how the church grappled with this when they heard about it, Luke is actually making, I think, a very vital point to us about God's plan to glorify Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Luke is showing us the mystery of God's plan of redemption, that there is one gospel concerning one Savior who rescues us from our sins and brings us into a right relationship with the one true God, making us righteous with Him to live by His Spirit as members of one body called into His kingdom from every tribe and nation and people of the earth. At either end of this passage, I don't know if you noticed it, we have two statements specifically about the salvation of the Gentiles. Verse 1, The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. You notice that? Verse 18 then. And they glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. First, we have God's word, receiving the word. And second, we have receiving repentance that leads to life. Word to life. That is the line going through this whole passage. The word of the gospel leads to life. As John 1, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. And then verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus, as the Word of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He fulfilled all righteousness with His obedience. He died as a substitute in our place. He rose in victory over the grave. He has received all authority. And He has declared that all who believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That, my friends, is the Gospel. One of the one of the major issues that I think you see in the modern church is that the gospel is framed as something that you've got to do to get right with God. Okay? It's, what do I do? Well, what you do is you trust in what Christ has done for you. It's not about putting yourself in a position where you make yourself right with God and then you can have Jesus. No. You come to Christ. You receive a righteousness that is not your own. You trust Him, as difficult as that is. And you let go of every other Savior. And then accordingly, you live out of that relationship, bearing fruit for the glory of Christ. That is what the gospel is. It's not about you finding a way to save yourself. It's about you trusting in what God has done for you. So let's get that straight. The reason the proclamation of that word is so important is because, as we read in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You notice Peter didn't save any of those Gentiles. He came and he proclaimed a message, and then he watched as God opened minds and as he changed hearts and they responded with due affection and praise because they had been born again and the way he knew that was that the spirit fell on them and fundamentally changed them they they went from dead to living and Peter watched that and he saw the work done God is the one who orchestrated all of that. And God is the one who made the message take effect in those people's hearts. God is the one who poured his spirit out on Cornelius and his family as evidence that they had been made alive in Christ. The heart of the issue in Acts 11 is that the gospel is for all people. The Gentiles received the word of God. They received the spirit of God. And as such, they became part of the one body of Christ just as the Jewish believers had. The gospel brings us together in that same way, despite our backgrounds, despite our histories, despite the things that we struggle with even now. It brings us together in one Savior, who is Jesus Christ. As the Word works, as the Spirit of God wields that Word, all glory goes to Christ our King. And so when we think about what this passage means for us, I think it's important for us to look at this and to consider how this unity exists between us if, we've been, if we have believed the gospel. That because of Christ, salvation is ours by faith. That because of Christ, the Spirit and the gifts are ours. That because of Christ, we can be at peace with each other 
as we seek to glorify him in sharing this good news with the world around us. And as we consider the way that we have come through the preaching of God's word, the proclamation, because you believe, because at some point someone shared this message with you, as we think about that, then I think we're rightly motivated to continue to share the good news of Jesus with others. Not because we somehow go out and save people, but because we have a gospel that we have believed, and we have a Lord who commands us to proclaim, and we have a, a word of authority that opens men's, men's, men and women's eyes to the truth, and a spirit who makes that seed take effect, so that when Christ returns, he will be glorified. Not one of his sheep will be lost. And the world will see and know that he is king of kings. That's, that's, that's what our mission as a church. To make Christ known and to rely on the work of God through his word until the day when Christ is seen, not just the word, but face to face. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, we have so much reason, I think, to be comforted. Because there is so much anguish and argument in the church today. Not necessarily here, but, but abroad. And it's difficult, Lord, to look at the church and, and to consider those, those things, to consider how much war is there, and, and to not be discouraged by it. And yet, Father, as we, as we read this, as, as we see the early church... We see that it was not immune from controversy. And we, we see how you prevailed over that controversy, but not only that, Father, you used it in such a way as to open our eyes to deeper understand the glory of Christ and, and the message of the gospel. And Father, we are here today because of that. And so, Father, even as we see the distress that may be in the world around us, Help us to trust that you are using this for our sanctification, to, to grow and to mold us more into the image of Christ. Help us to trust your word, to, to not err into other authorities that uh, may seem to be more effective at the outset, but which don't have the same sort of effect that your word does. Father, teach us to be a people of the book. And help us to rely on your spirit as he wields that in us so that we pursue purity and pursue holiness and pursue in love the holiness of our brothers and sisters. Father, teach us to, to love the way Christ has loved. Teach us to rest the way that Christ did in your word. Teach us to trust you. And, and in doing so, Father, we pray that our testimony would be as such that as those who come after us, if you, if you continue to wait, Father, I pray for those, those future generations of believers that they will look at the church here and now and say, though they faced many different issues, though they faced controversy, they lived and prevailed in the Word, and they, they, they gave us a reason, I want to love you that way. Father, help us to be good examples in that way. And we pray, Father, as we entrust ourselves to you, that you would in fact bring this about as you promise in your word and that your spirit would exalt Christ in us. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.